1: Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and uh-huh, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word, which even when it is hard, it is always good for us. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, all that you have for us in this text. You, you know every single person in this room, you know our stories, you know that we come into this room from so many different places and backgrounds, that we come convinced, uh, some, of us, some of us are finding ourselves in a Christian church for the very first time and we cannot even believe that we're here. Some of us come having once believed and trying to figure out if we could ever believe again. Some of us come in the midst of incredible suffering. Some of us come in the midst of depression or a marriage that's falling apart. Some of us come not knowing how we're going to pay tomorrow's bills. Some of us come feeling just trapped in addictions that we cannot seem to get out of. God, we come from so many different places, and yet, in one sense, we come from the same place, which, we is, which is we are more broken than we know, and we are more in need of your love and your grace in our life than we could ever really comprehend. And so meet us. Meet us wherever we are this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let me invite you to take your seats. Uh, Last week, we started a new series uh, where we're looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, And, and I said this, that a parable is just another word for a story. Jesus was always telling stories. In fact, they were his main method of teaching. And, you know, the question is, I talked about this a little bit last week, why did Jesus teach in stories? Well, Ignatius, who, he was a 16th century theologian, he wrote a book called The Spiritual Exercises. And in this book, he talked about the importance of a Christian's imagination to grow spiritually. That, that to grow as a Christian, it, it involves not just your, not just your, your intellect, your and not just your will and not just your affections, but it, but it involves your imagination. It actually requires your imagination. And what Ignatius says is this. He says, when you read the stories of Jesus, the whole point of them is this. We are being invited into the story. The, the whole point is that you are imagining yourself in these characters which is kind of amazing to think about because Ignatius was writing in 1522, a long time ago. And yet, you know, when you think about it, this is what the best filmmakers do today. They tell, those who tell the best stories tell stories that you are able to imagine yourself in, and you begin to identify with the characters. And that's why stories, they're way more powerful than just kind of lecture or just kind of naked truth, because they invite you in. And so Jesus doesn't just say, love your neighbor. No, Jesus tells a story about a man who falls in a ditch and another man who comes along and helps him. And Jesus doesn't just say, love God more than you love anything else, but he tells a story about a man who finds a treasure in a field and he sells everything that he has to get it. And Jesus doesn't just say, this is what we looked at last week, God loves you no matter what. No, instead he tells a story about a father who has two sons. Now today, we come to a story about a rich man and a poor man. And the question is, which character are we to imagine ourselves as in the story? Which one? Is it the rich man? Or is it Lazarus the poor man? You know what the answer is? Neither. You know why? Both of them are dead in the story. I'm pretty sure everybody here this morning has a pulse. If, if the person next to you doesn't, let, some, let an usher know and let's get some help in here, okay? No. If it's not either of these two characters, who is it? You know who it is? It's, it's the five brothers of the rich man. They're mentioned at the very end of the story. They are the only people in the story who are alive. And you see, here's the point. We are just like these five brothers. We are going about our daily lives, most of the time not thinking about eternity or any sort of kind of like what's next beyond just kind of our own present moment and we are needing someone to desperately awaken us to deeper realities, to eternal realities beyond just this moment and this world. And you see, what the, rich man, what the rich man wanted for his brothers, what does he want? Somebody go and tell them. What the rich man wanted for his brothers, Jesus is giving us through this parable. This parable, it is both a warning and an invitation for us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the warning and the invitation. So first, the warning. Now, there's actually three of them. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? 3 You're like, I came to feel good. We'll get there. There are three warnings, and let me warn you, none of them are pleasant they're all kind of like broccoli okay you might not enjoy it but you still need to eat it all right just because it doesn't taste good doesn't mean that it is isn't good so here's the first warning you cannot escape death you cannot escape death look at verse 22 the time came The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It says the time came. We read right past that phrase. But you know what? At some point, the time always comes. For all of us, without fail, I don't want to alarm you this morning, but the death rate is about 100% ever since the foundations of the world. It might come in 50 years, or it might come tomorrow, but it will come. It, it reminds me of uh, the song from Hamilton Wait For It. Remember this song for you Hamilton fans? There's a line in this song that says Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. Now here's the irony, is that even though death is the most ubiquitous of all human experiences, it is also the one that we are most in denial about. British author Jane Walmsley, she says this, she says, the single most important thing to know about Americans is that they think death is optional. Several years ago, I was talking to a friend who had just been diagnosed with cancer stage four wasn't even 40 years old several young children and what he was coming to grips with was that there was a possible death sentence over his life and this way he said he said it's so strange to be aware of your own mortality when i go to the grocery store when i pick up my kids from school when i'm driving in traffic It's like I know a secret that nobody else knows or wants to know. And the secret is this. This life can be taken from you in a second. It's like my wife and I are awake to something that almost everyone else we encounter is asleep to. Now you know what Jesus is doing in this parable? He is trying to wake us up to shake us awake to the reality of death. Because get this, as long as death is an abstraction to you, you know what else will be an abstraction to you? God. And eternity. The first warning is that you cannot escape death. Here's the second one. The second warning is your biggest, your best things may be your biggest threats in life. Your best things may be your biggest threats. John Calvin he said it this way he said we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. I want you to think about that for just a second. I mean isn't it so often the case that the things that cause us to live most in denial of death, the things that make us, the things that make us think we are safe and secure and nothing bad can ever happen to us? are our good things, like youth, and beauty, and health, and achievement, and career, and success, and in this story, money. One of the most striking features of the story is that Jesus puts the rich man in hell and the poor man in heaven. And commentators say, Jesus is hes going above and beyond to really exaggerate things here because this man, he's not just rich. Like, he is really, really rich. He is exceedingly rich. A couple clues in the text. He's dressed in purple linen. This was the most costly dye. His house had a gate. You're doing well in life if your house has a gate. This guy, this is an estate. And then uh, this is kind of a very interesting one. Verses 22, it talks about how the rich man was buried. But you never get any detail about that for the poor man. Burial costs money. They're expensive. So it's, it's, listen, it's no small detail that, that it's the rich man who ends up in hell and it's the poor man that Jesus puts in heaven. And so you might think, well, gosh, so is Jesus saying rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven and the answer is absolutely not he's absolutely not saying that Uh, number one you know who is in heaven in this story Abraham father Abraham this is the Abraham all the way back in Genesis who had lots of cattle and lots of land and he was a very wealthy person And and by the way, nowhere in the Bible do you find it saying rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. So what is Jesus teaching in this passage? What's the warning? The warning is this. Here's the warning. It's that money, though it is not inherently bad, it can be incredibly dangerous in your life. And here's why. It can blind you to your need. It blinds you to your need. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30. Give me riches, give me not riches, but only daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Money makes you think that you have everything that you need and so it blinds you to your greatest need, which is God. And that's why you see this throughout the Gospels. The wealthier you are, the more likely you are to reject the gospel, to not see your sin, to not see your need for God. Why? Because you think I already have everything that I need. Why do I need God when I have money? It, it, it blinds you to your need. You know what it said blinds you to? It blinds you to other people's need. Verse 20 says that this poor man Lazarus, he sat right outside the rich man's gate. In other words, This rich man walked by this poor man every single day and he never helped him. You know why? Because he never saw him. Uh, Psychologists have actually discovered that typically the more wealth a person has, the less ability they have to empathize with others. Why? Because empathy is built, psychologists say, through interdependence. It's it's when you have needs that you're more likely to recognize them in other people. But when you lose touch with your own needs, guess what you lose touch with? You lose touch with other people's needs. And you lose your ability to empathize. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, warning, your best things, even your money and perhaps most especially your money, whether you have it or whether you were chasing after it can be your biggest threat. It can give you a false sense of security that your life is somehow buffered from suffering. It can blind you to the suffering of those around you, and it can blind you to the only real thing that can actually withstand your suffering, which is God. Two very serious warnings. Here's the last one. You ready for this? Hell is real. Some of you are like, this is going downhill fast. Should have brought my friend next week. Or, gosh, you know, last week we were talking about the love of God. <laughs> I should have brought him last week. This is a serious warning. Let me just say this. Jesus talks about hell in this passage, so we need to talk about it too. You never do yourself a favor when you skip over the hard parts of the Bible. It just will not help you. And, and what you'll find is if you actually stick with it, there is beauty underneath even the hardest parts of the Bible. There's good news underneath the hardest parts of the Bible. Jesus talks a lot about hell. So we need to talk about it too. Now, I saw this week, there was a a recent poll from Barna that came out. Get this, 71% of Americans believe in hell. 0.005 think that they're in danger of being there. That's some sketchy math right there. Look, this is not a popular topic, And for some of you, it might actually be your biggest barrier to belief in Christianity. How can I believe in a God who sends people to hell? And that's an understandable question. It's one we need to deal with. Because listen to this. Jesus doesn't just talk about hell in this passage. He talks about it all over the Gospels. In fact, he talks about hell more than everyone else in the Bible put together. Daniel, Isaiah, Paul, Peter, John. And before, listen, before we reject Jesus' teaching on hell, we need to realize that that would be like saying to the preeminent teacher in all of history on love and grace. The one who talked about love and grace more than anyone else ever has, that would be like saying to Jesus, Jesus, I am more compassionate than you. I'm more kind than you. I'm more loving than you. And I'm wiser than you. And I know better than you how the universe should run. So just b- before you dismiss it, let's, let's just talk about it for a second. What is Jesus teaching us about hell in this passage? Well, I think the answer might surprise you. Did you notice this, very interesting detail in this story? The rich man, he, not one time does he ask to get out of hell. He never asked to get out. We have this image of God throwing people into hell, and them trying to climb out, and God saying, no, 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 no. But you see, the, the rich man, he never asked to get out. Now, he does ask for Lazarus to come in. Really, really good fellow here, you know. <laughs> but he never asked to get out. Why not? Well, look at verse 23. In Hades, meaning hell, where he was in torment, and you were in agony. Abraham says to this rich man, you received your good things. In other words, you got what you wanted in life. And what did he want? He wanted money. He wanted wealth. He wanted security. He wanted status. He wanted comfort. You know what he didn't want? God. He didn't need God. Now I just want you to think about this now. if, if If you don't want God right now, do you think that changes after you die? Do you think if you don't want God now that you'll want him in eternity? See, this rich man, he did not want God when he was on earth, and he doesn't want God in eternity. All he wanted was for God to leave him alone. He never asked to get out john ortberg who's a he's a christian pastor and author he he illustrates this this way he, he he illustrates it with the he calls it the aunt edna objection to hell he says whenever whenever he starts talking about hell uh someone invariably says something along these lines what about my aunt edna she's a nice lady she's never heard anyone She's kind to stray cats. She's a good grandmother. She's a good person. But she is not into the God thing. Do you think Aunt Edna deserves to go to hell? And Ortberg writes this. He says, so let's think for a moment about Aunt Edna, because here's what's happened in her life. When she was young, every once in a while, maybe at Christmas or at Easter, she would hear the story of the God who loved her. And God would whisper to her through the story of Scripture, you can learn more about me if you want to. I'd love for you to, I'd love for you to be my child, but Aunt Edna made a little decision. It may not have been overt, she may never have verbalized it, but she made a little decision and the decision was this, I am not going to do that. I'm going to pursue other things and not God. Orberg continues, and then there would be times in her life when she would look at a sunset or a tree or the ocean, and God would whisper to her through creation, I made this. I made you. You didn't get here by yourself. You know that, and you can know me. But again, she made a little decision. No, I will not acknowledge you. There were times when she did something wrong because Aunt Edna is no more perfect than you or I and God would whisper to her through her conscience, you know you can be forgiven, you know you need it, you can get a fresh start and I can give it to you if you'll only ask. But she made a little decision, no, I will not bend my knee, I will not ask. As she grew older, more of the people As she grew older, more of the people she knew began to struggle with health issues and they began to die. At every funeral, she was confronted with her own mortality and God whispered to her through her experience, you cannot beat death, but I have planted eternity in your heart. This fear of death and the longing for something more, it's there in every human being. And if you ask me, if you say yes to me, you can be with me forever. But she made a little decision I will not ask, I will not say yes, I will be the captain of my own ship. She gets to the end of her life, and maybe she never said it outwardly, but the truth is that she has said no to God a thousand times. She has locked the door of her heart over and over again. She doesn't wanna confess to him or submit to him or worship him or serve him. All she wants is to be left alone by him. And being left alone is what the Bible calls hell. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, in the Bible, God's wrath is something which people choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God. It's a state for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. No one, says Packer, stands under the wrath of God except for those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's wrath is giving people what they choose. And C.S. Lewis, he just boils it all down into one sentence. He says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. See, it's it's not that if you don't want God then God doesn't want you. It's said if you don't want God, then God will give you what you want. He will give you life apart from him if you make that choice. But don't you see that God doesn't want you to make that choice? God made you. God loves you. God wants to be with you. I mean, don't you know that's why you're here this morning? You think, well, I'm, I'm, no, I'm here because a friend made me come. <laughs> no, you're here because God is pursuing you and because God wants you and because God is inviting you. He's inviting you. This passage, it is both a warning and it's an invitation. Let's talk about the invitation. Just like it has three warnings, it has three invitations. Here's the first one. The first invitation is to receive an identity that you can never lose. Now, Jesus told a lot of parables, told a lot of stories. We're going to be looking at a lot of them in the the next couple months. Here's something interesting and unique about this parable. It's the only parable that Jesus tells where someone has a name. It is the only parable that Jesus tells where he actually gives one of the characters a name. See, the rich man doesn't have a name. He's just called the rich man. You know why he's called the rich man? Because his money is his identity. It's what defines him. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish philosopher, said, that's actually what sin is. Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. You say, wait a minute, I thought sin was just like That list of bad things that I'm not supposed to do. Yes, but Christianity has a far more nuanced definition of sin than that. Sin is not just bad things. Sin is good things that become ultimate things. Things that give you an identity. Things that you say, this is what gives me meaning and significance in life. And you can do it with your money. You can do it with your intellect. You can do it with a, a relationship and you know listen to this what happens if you take any good thing and you make it into an ultimate thing you make it to your into your identity you know what happens you know what happens when you lose that thing you lose yourself see and you I mean you do realize that death is going to take everything from you right it takes your money It takes your status, it takes your beauty, it takes your career, it takes every relationship that you have. None of these things can give you a lasting identity, so what can? Well, the rich man doesn't have a name, but the poor man does. And and the name that Jesus gives to him is Lazarus. You know what it means? It means God is my help. Think about that. The rich man said, I don't need help, I don't need God. But the poor man said, all I need is God, God is my help. When you make God the ultimate thing in your life, when he becomes the thing that you want slash need more than anything else, you know what happens? You get a name. You get an identity that nothing else can take from you, not even death. And that means you can stop your desperate search for significance. It means that you are now free from feeling like you've got to impress people around you. It means that you don't have to wonder anymore whether or not you matter. Some of you showed up into this room this morning wondering, does my life even matter? You You know what this means? It means that your life matters to the king of heaven and earth, to the one who is running the show He sees you, and you matter to Him. You are a son. You are a daughter of the King. You are righteous in Christ. You are cleansed. You are cherished by God. You have an identity. Here's the second invitation. Second invitation is to experience a love that lasts forever. Now Jesus gives a very interesting description of heaven. This is, by the way, this parable, we can't you know, deduce any sort of exhaustive understanding of heaven and hell from this one little story, but there's, there's, some, there's some pretty important things we can gather from it. Jesus gives a very interesting description of, of heaven. Look at verse 22. He says, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, and the, the, the word there is bosom, Abraham's bosom. Bosom is not really a word that we use anymore. You're kind of a pervert or a weirdo if you use it. But it is the language of intimacy. It's the language of love and relationship. See, we, we think of heaven as a place that we go, but Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Heaven is actually primarily about the love and the relationship that you will experience when you get there. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he once preached a sermon on heaven. I love the title. It was called Heaven is a World of Love. And he asked this question. He says, what is heaven? What is it? I mean, is it, is it, is it just streets of gold? Is it, is it harps and clouds and angels and, uh, and, 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 and glory? And what Edwards says is, you know, that's actually not what really grabs our hearts. That doesn't get us all that excited. You know what grabs our hearts? Love. He says heaven is primarily a place of love and friendship. Now isn't that what you're ultimately after? I mean, think about this. We've talked a lot about money today. We've talked a lot about money today, but money is not what we're really after. I mean, deep down we know relationships are what really matter. Think about this. If you have a lot of money, and everybody hates you, you're alone, you are not happy. You, 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 feel, you only feel truly wealthy when you are loved and you're, when you're loving people and you're being loved by people. What we really want in life is love. Now what Edwards says in this sermon is he says, the problem is that in this life, in this world, love is actually more often a source of pain than it is of joy. And he gives about eight or nine reasons why that is. I'm going to give you five this morning very quickly. He says, the first is this. He says, we all want to be loved for our own sake. You know, one of the most painful things is when you realize someone is in relationship with you, not because they love you, but because they're using you. They're trying to get something from you. We we want to be loved for our own sake. But that's not what happens often. And then he says, another barrier is this. He says, we want to express our love to people that we love without impediment. But the problem is that pride and selfishness and defensiveness and our grudges get in the way. We we, we want to be able to fully express our love to people that we love, but there's all these things that keep us from doing it. And then he says, the third thing is this. He says, we want love to be mutual. Right, when we love someone, We want them to love us back as much as we love them. Unreciprocated love, I mean, it is one of the most painful things in this world. And some of you experience that in breakups or even in divorces, very painful. The fourth barrier is this, is that when you love someone, if they're not happy, it actually affects your happiness. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you love someone, your, your happiness is bound to their happiness, which means if they're not happy, then you can't be happy either. It, parenting is a great example of this. It's been said that um, you are only as happy as your unhappiest child. And all everybody in this room laughing is parents right now, because you know this. So listen, I mean, the more people you love, the more you are just opening yourself to suffering. To love is to suffer. In this world, it brings pain. Here's the last barrier, is that, and I think this is the biggest one, is we want, we want to never be separated from the people that we love. We want our relationships to go on forever. And the reality is that none of them do at almost every wedding that I officiate, when we get to the vows, I say to the couple, I say, let me tell you the promise that you're about to make to one another. The promise that you're about to say these words until death do us part. And what, what you're promising is either I'm gonna bury you or you're gonna bury me. You know, people think, gosh, it's a wedding. It should be happy. Why are we talking about death? Because that's the promise that you're making. And that's why love is so painful. Because everybody that we love, we have to say goodbye to. We want to love without parting. See, we live in a world, I mean, just think about this. We live, we are creatures of love, but we live in a world where love is more a source of pain than it is of joy because we want to love completely and fully and we want it to be mutual and we want everybody that we love to be happy and never suffer or get hurt and we want to never be separated from them. And that's not the way it is here. But Jesus is saying in this parable That is the way it will be in heaven. Every relationship we have will be one of perfect mutual love. Nobody will be sad. You'll never have to say goodbye again. Think about that. You'll never have to say goodbye to anyone in heaven. And you will be loved completely And fully, you'll be loved in the way that you long to be loved. You know why? Because you won't just be at Abraham's side. You'll be at God's side. See, in biblical terms, heaven, it is not primarily about a place. It's about a person. Heaven is shorthand for the full presence of God. It's the opposite of hell. We've already talked about this. Hell is the absence of God. What is heaven? It's the exact opposite. Heaven is the full presence of God, the full blessing of God, the full favor of God, the full smile of God, the full love of God. It is love without pain and only joy. And every single person in this room was made for that love. And maybe the question you're asking this morning is, well, how do I get it? I'd like that. I feel that impulse in me. I feel a desire for that kind of love. How do I get it? Well, that brings us to the third invitation. The third invitation of this story is, look to the God who will do anything to have you. You know what the greatest understanding of heaven and hell is? The greatest greatest misunderstanding of heaven and hell is that Good people go to one place, and bad people go to another place. Now, that's religion, but that is not Christianity. Christianity does not say that the good are in and the bad are out. And Jesus destroys that belief in this parable. Because look at this. In verse 24, when Jesus describes the rich man in hell, you know how he describes him? He describes him as desperately thirsty. And virtually all scholars say this is a metaphor it's a metaphor not just it's not just about physical thirst it is about spiritual thirst. to be thirsty is not simply talking about not having access to water it's talking about not having access to God and to his presence and to being cast out from him to being separated from him now In the Gospels, we have about seven recorded sayings from Jesus on the cross. Seven, not many. Jesus chose his words very wisely and very carefully. Do you know what one of those seven recorded sayings is? I thirst. Here's what the Christian Gospel says. It says that on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate Spiritual thirst, not just physical thirst, but the ultimate thirst. He was cast out from God's presence. He lost access to the Father. He experienced total separation from God. He experienced the full wrath of God. He experienced hell. And no one forced him. He, he made that choice on his own, which is unlike every other person Who has ever chosen it? Jesus did not choose it for his own sake. No, no, no. He chose it for our sake. In just a minute, we're going to sing a song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And this table that we're about to come to, what it reminds us is that God's God's love for you, it is so deep that he went to the depth of hell in order to have you. And you'll never know how much Jesus loves you until you believe in hell, until you see how far he was willing to go for you. Jesus chose the cross and he chose the hell that it would bring not because he wanted to be apart from God. You know why he chose it? Because he wanted you and me to be with God forever. Not because we have been good Not because we've tried hard enough, not because we have kept the rules, but because of his deep, deep love for us. Friends, this table is God's invitation to you this morning into an eternity of love and relationship with him and with others. And if you have never accepted that invitation, you can accept it today you can choose it today would you God invites you On the night in which he was betrayed the Lord Jesus took bread and after he given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body given for you eat this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup and he blessed it saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what love we find at this table. The love of a God who would stop at nothing, not even hell, to win us back to himself. As we eat this tiny wafer and drink this small cup, would you take hold of our hearts and our minds and our wills and would you take hold of our imagination that we could see All the love that is offered to us at this table and through your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.